0: been. Most of you know that, but if you don't, no, you do. I'm glad you're here, and uh, I'm missing half the crew, so I think it would be cool if you would pray with me right now for our ladies who are gone. We have, I think, 42 women have gone out to the coast, and I've gotten one text so far uh, which was very favorable, so let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for the women of our community Thank you for giving them spiritual gifts that are powerful and helpful that build us up. Thank you for bonding them in relationship to each other. I pray that you'd keep them safe on their travels back. Most importantly, that you would connect them in deep spiritual fellowship. Thanks for loving our church the way you do. Amen. Um, Before I get going too, I just wanted to make a little mention, because we have had lots of new things and changes going on. I had a couple of folks this week ask me a question, which I felt was a little bit out of left field, but as I thought about it for two more seconds, it made perfect sense. The question was, hey, is Central Bible about to close down? (laughs) What are you talking about? I'm pouring my heart and soul into it and working with the pastors. However, We've done a few things right away back to back uh, and that could give that impression. So we've changed our office hours uh, and Monday we don't have office hours anymore, but that's because we're having our office manager work on Sundays. We needed more of a coordinating presence. So it was just a simple shift, not a decline. Uh, The other things that we are doing related to Joy Central and elsewhere around the property, we have worked very diligently praying and talking And we've made those changes out of a desire to bring strength and health to our church, uh, not out of a desire to slowly close it down. So they can say that uh, very firmly on behalf of our whole elder and pastor team. And one thing I would ask you, if you'd be willing, I'd ask you to pray for us, uh, especially the pastors working here day in and day out. We need your prayers at this moment. It's been difficult. I'm a new lead pastor. I know I've been doing this with you for three years, but it's been taxing, and I've made mistakes, and I have uh, needed your prayers all the way through. I need them now, I think, more than ever. So if you'd be willing to do that, I'll continue praying for you as well. I wanted to say that before I got going. Okay. And if you have any questions, just like the folks who have asked them to me this week, don't hesitate. Right in your bulletin, you've got my email, um, you call my cell, I'll talk with you, I'll meet with you, anything to help. Cool? All right. We took a break last week for Mother's Day, took a little hiatus out of our Axe series. We've been in axe for a long time. Uh, today, we're going to jump back into it. And if you remember, two weeks ago, we left off in Stephen's famous sermon. So in the broad context of the Bible and the story of God, we're we're seeing the beginning of the early church take root in this world. Stephen becomes the first martyr, and this sermon we're reading is the longest sermon in the book of Acts, and it's really impactful, and it's important. We got about a third of the way in. You can find this in Acts chapter seven, and that's where we'll be today. Feel free to open your Bibles now and kind of keep your finger there. The first part of the sermon is a response to a challenge. Actually, the whole sermon is a response to a challenge. The first part is a little bit odd. It catches us off guard. So the challenge has been brought against Stephen and against Peter and the other believers who are in Jerusalem up at the temple talking about Jesus, the Christos, the Messiah, and the Jewish leadership of the temple precinct is not stoked about that. We've seen different battles waged. When we come to Stephen, they're particularly hot about Stephen preaching this euangelion or the good news or the gospel. It's messing up the system. They don't like it. They're challenging him to defend himself, all right? So they have leveled some serious accusations against Stephen, and they've said, now, what do you have to say for yourself? They have have said he was blaspheming. They have said he was uh, organizing a terrorist group to tear down the temple. They have said he is... Doing wicked things against God and his word and his law. And I say to Stephen, we've said what we said, bro. What do you have to say for yourself in defense? And if you remember, uh, Stephen says, well, when God met Abraham, and then there was Joseph, and we're kind of like, that's an odd way to respond. (laughs) What do you have to say for yourself, Stephen? Let's talk about Abraham. So that caught us off guard. Why is he talking about Abraham and then Joseph to defend himself? I think it's because Stephen ultimately, and this is kind of thematic for our whole time today, Stephen is trying to introduce a system to a person, okay? He's trying to introduce a system to a person, that person would be Jesus, He's been in Jerusalem at the temple talking with people who have been a part of a beautiful and ancient tradition. They're part of a fixed system that has worked really well. It has enabled them to push through war, through exile and captivity and slavery. Their system of religious worship and communal life has strengthened and built them and anchored them deeply, okay? So it's not like they just came up with a bunch of weird nonsense to do and he's like, hey, that's dumb. This is deep, meaningful, identity-forming, community-strengthening ways of life. This Judaism system has brought health and security. It's providing community. I would say most importantly, it's providing safety. Out on your own in this world they're living in, and quite frankly in ours today too, out on your own is not fun. It's often deadly. Connected deeply. They have a system that works. Now, in a world like ours, very chaotic, painful, deadly, what happens when you find something that brings safety to you? You know, yeah, whatever. No, you find something that brings safety to you and you grip onto it. You hold onto that thing no matter what. It might be a job. I I hate it, and it's demoralizing, but it brings me safety. It might be any number of things, but when you find something that brings safety, we want to grip it and hold it. It's just an instinct we have. I'm gonna suggest they're gripping onto their system. And you might say, well, what do you mean by system? I think there's a lot of books and great things to read about systems. I haven't read any of them. So I'm just gonna tell you a couple of things that I think are part of a system. And, and they have the, the letter R to connect them. So that makes it smart. If I could do it in a British accent, it'd be even smarter. Rules. In a system, there are rules, and everybody who's part of it agrees to follow them. Fair enough? There are relationships within a system, and the relationships, depending on the system, vary greatly, but they're between people that can be healthy or not. They could be the kind of relationships where in this system, we're all doing this together. In some systems, it's... This is in charge, authority, submission, structure, but there's lots of ways that people need to relate to each other in a system. Rules, relationships, and then rhythms. There are rhythms, there are ways and patterns and customs and traditions, we do this. Anything where you say something like, hey, why do we do this? And the answer is, because that's what we do. I think that's kind of what I mean by a rhythm. So in any system, you have rules we follow, ways of relating to each other, and then patterns, rhythms, ways of operating that we grow used to. Your workplace, therefore, is a system. You have rules to follow. You have ways of relating to your boss or your direct reports or your colleagues, and then you have rhythms. We start on this time, we end at this time, weekends are this way, vacate, you know. That's all part of your system. Your family is a system your home our church is a system chaos would absolutely ensue if we just sort of said you know let's let's bow at the altar of benign whateverism just do whatever nothing matters so we, so systems are not bad and yet they're not the source of life and this is where it can get, this gets real dicey. You see it all through the Bible, especially in the New Testament. Yeah, in Galatians, Paul will say to the, to the Jewish folks, you guys have great systems. You, you follow the days and the months and observe all this stuff, and yet you're missing the source of real life. So we need systems, but perhaps like a home, they're a place to contain and order life but they're not the source of life. Houses, your home, does it give you life? It really doesn't give you life. It helps to shelter it, protect it, keep it going. But your home isn't the source of your life. You say, oh yeah, my my bread and food and water, that's what gives me life. Maybe, but I hear Jesus' language of, you know, it's not on bread alone that you survive. It's not bread alone that a human being needs. Even bread and water or food, sustenance, it helps you survive, but is it the source of your life? I don't think it is. I think systems are the same. They help you reduce the chaos of life They help life flourish but they are not the source of life. And as soon as the system you're living in is viewed by you as the source of life, that takes a precedent that it becomes the number one priority. And I think that's what's going on with the people that Stephen is addressing. The problem comes up, this is kind of the crux, when God says move. It's time to follow me. Rise up, he says to Abraham, and come after, go after, go into the place that I will show you. Follow me, Jesus, often. Rise up, come up, get up, and come after me. Those who recognize God as the source of life will get up and follow. They are willing to leave the safety of their system And are willing to allow God to set a new course. We've seen Stephen talk like this with Abraham and Joseph already. Abraham had to get up out of his family, go from what he knew into a new place. Joseph had to disconnect from his family and he was sent into a brutal place. And yet God was with him. Stephen is trying to help him see this kind of stuff. On the contrary, those who recognize their system as a source of life are dying. It's straight up death. It can look really good if you have a well-polished system, and yet it's not the source of life. This type, this profile will resist the Holy Spirit. We will resist the Holy Spirit and stick with what we trust more than God. And I think Stephen is throwing a sort of a wink and a nod to him and saying, you guys love talking about how much you trust God, but you actually don't. You trust your ways. You trust yourselves. Here's an example. Now this comes right before the sermon. So in Acts chapter 6 verse 9. He says, some men from the synagogue of the freedmen, and you know, they've come from kind of all the precincts and the regions around there, they stood up and they argued with Stephen. They, they argued with him. Okay, Luke is telling us, some men were big players in the Jewish system, and they argued with Stephen. Stephen, you are messing up our source of life. Why are you doing that? Why would you want to mess with what we need to live? Chapter 6, verse 11. Then they secretly instigated some men to say, we have heard this man speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. We talked about this already. They incited people, the elders and the experts, and they approached Stephen and they seized him and they brought him before the council. They brought forth witnesses to say, this man does not stop saying things against this holy place. Ah, a little cue into their system. The way that they understood how things work and the way things roll had a lot to do with the temple, the holy place. They said, he's saying stuff about our place. It's a holy place. He shouldn't be saying what he's saying. And the law. He's saying things against the place and the law, for we've heard him say that Jesus the Nazarene will destroy this place and change the rhythms that Moses gave us, the customs that Moses handed down. This guy's talking about changing the law and the place and the customs of Moses. He's blowing up our spot. He's wanting to tweak our system. Stephen says, wait a minute, blasphemous words against Moses? What are you talking about? I'm, talk, I'm not talking blasphemy against Moses or the law. I think they come back and they say, well, we have our rules, and our rules are good rules. In our relationships, we know who's in charge and who's not, Stephen. Sorry, buddy, you're not in charge. Who can speak about these kinds of things and who cannot, sorry, Stephen. You're not qualified to speak about these things. Why? Because you're not in charge. Well, what if Stephen is right, though? What if what Stephen is saying is true? Doesn't matter. It doesn't fit with what we know. We have our rhythms and customs that Moses has handed down. So there's Stephen trying to introduce a system to a person. Could you guys meet Jesus? And what Jesus is about and what he taught simply doesn't fit, not with what they have created. It violates our heritage. Stephen, what you're saying is violating our heritage, what we've worked so hard to accomplish. Or so they assume. Maybe it's not a violation at all. And therein lies, I think, one of the coolest parts of Stephen's speech. He uses their most influential people in their history. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, the great John G. Moses. He looks to the great, he's not saying, hey, you guys all think Moses is cool, but he's not. He's not saying that. He's saying, you love Moses, so do I. Let's actually look a little closer at Moses. He shows them how, and I mentioned this already, Joseph had to leave his family. Abraham had to leave his family. Who else did? Moses had to leave even the whole people of God. Moses wasn't even raised by the people of God, was he? Raised by Egyptians. Stephen's point. All of these people were not raised up in the system, and yet God was with them and he saved them and changed them and rescued them. God can't be thwarted. God is not contained in the things that you guys make. Stephen's point, I think, if we kind of ratchet it into today, focus on the family, that's okay. But stop thinking that that's the source of life. That might be a great system, but it might not. It's not the source of life. You need to hold that loosely. God did not require a healthy home operating in the traditional American evangelical way of life for him to raise up Joseph. It wasn't necessary. Sometimes we think, this is necessary, or the child can't meet God. (gasps) I think he's saying that's not the case. You can imagine the parents at the temple This Jesus is talking about taking the temple. Great-grandma and grandpa met God at the temple. Grandma and grandpa met God at the temple. I met God at the temple. Where is my child going to meet God if we take it down? And he's saying, look, there are the greatest heroes of our faith on whose shoulders we stand. They were not raised with a temple in view. They were not raised with the great Jewish leaders. They were raised by Egyptian pagans who worship Ra and cats. You know, come on. But God was with them. God is powerful. God is the source of life. God is who we follow. The bigger point, Stephen says, to these powerful judges of him, they're judging him, right? He says, you are thinking that a young guy like me standing before you is not sticking to the script. You think that I'm out of line and I'm trying to show you that I'm standing right in line with something that's been going on for a very long time, but you've missed it. He sounds like Jesus there, doesn't he? Jesus often says that. If you had paid attention to the scriptures, you wouldn't be so bummed about me. Then he goes straight for Moses. Stephen does. This is the whole last half of the sermon. I think it's fitting that he goes straight to Moses, because they have accused him of blaspheming against Moses. So he's like, you wanna talk about Moses? All right, let's talk about Moses. And he shows them that he not only knows the heritage of Moses really well, you, you can hear him in the crowd, you know, like, has this guy ever even read the Bible? Good grief, he doesn't, he doesn't even know Moses. Now he starts talking and they're like, okay. Dude knows Moses, clearly. Uh, In verse 17, the first few verses there, I'll paraphrase them for you. I think he's saying, hey guys, remember that brutal slavery that was going down before Moses? That was the system. We had Egyptian rules and Egyptian relationships of power between Pharaoh and the magicians and us. And we had rhythms, which were pretty predictable on our end. Bricks, bricks, more bricks, bricks, bricks. More, you know, your rhythm of life was pretty set, and st- set in brick, really. That was what you were doing. They say, yeah, yeah, we remember all that. Well, way back then, God introduced that Egyptian system to a person. And that person was Moses. And that person came in with the power of God. God was working through him. And guess what? Because Moses chose to live with God and participate with him, God powerfully led his people away from the death grip of slavery. He moved them out of there into freedom. All right, now the crowd, yay, go Moses. They're like, maybe Stephen's okay. Yeah. Dude, if you think that, Stephen, then why are you blaspheming that guy? He was awesome. Stephen says, Yeah, he was awesome, but when God first raised him up to become a leader, do you guys remember what we did to him? Uh, You know, they're like, Well, I think we honored him and revered him as a holy pillar of them. But what, what? Verse 26. He's going into the story, okay? We remember this. If you're familiar with this scene, you might remember it. Moses he he's gets himself into some hot water early on when he hasn't left the people yet, all right? Moses saw two men fighting, and he tried to make peace between them. Now he sees two of his own uh, Hebrew brothers fighting. Moses has previously broken up a fight in a sort of murderous way, <laughs> okay? And so his Hebrew people have seen Moses do something wrong in the context of another fight. Now... Moses' own Hebrew brothers are fighting. And Moses comes in and he says, hey guys, cut cut it out. It's time to stop fighting. You guys, you shouldn't be fighting. Men, you are brothers, he says. Why are you hurting one another? But the man who was unfairly hurting his neighbor said to Moses, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Think about it. What's Moses telling him? Is he telling him to do something stupid and crazy? No. He's saying, your brothers, stop trying to harm each other. Is that truthful and good? Yeah. So he's not oppressed them in any way. He's told them the truth of God. And their response is, why do you get to say that? The Hebrew people resisted the gift of God. And they booted Moses. And why? Because in our estimation, he was not worth listening to. Our people knew about his sin. We knew that Moses wasn't perfect. We knew about his problems. So even though he's speaking with the clear truth of God to us, we don't care. It is stupid for God's people to fight with each other, says Moses, and we know that that's true, but we didn't want to hear it, so we booted him interesting stephen has tried to you know they're like how could you say something bad about moses and stephen's like you know in our whole history we kind of constantly kick moses and his type of people out of here and yet there's this cool little thing in the story god's plans don't get thwarted god wants moses to lead the people right obviously the people say uh uh-uh, uh get him out of here and kick him out and we might say oh shoot sorry god guess your plans went once south But that's not the case. God meets Moses after Moses gets exiled, you might say, or kicked out of the crew. He meets him in a mysterious and fiery way, you know, in a small shrubbery. Every time I hear the word shrubbery, I think of Monty Python. I hate Monty Python movies, but I remember that one where they're the knights that say "ni." And the knights that say, nee nee, and then they're looking for a shrubbery. So when I get to the Moses scene, I think of movies that I don't enjoy. <clears throat> anyway, Moses meets God in the burning bush, and soon enough, he's back in Egypt, raring to go. We pick it up again in verse 35 then. This same Moses that they had rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? That same guy God sent as both a ruler and delivery. And he was the deliverer through the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the shrubbery. This man led them out, and he performed wonders and miraculous signs in the Red Sea and the wilderness for 40 years. Verse 37, this is the same Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. All right, Stephen is saying to them, I agree with you. Moses was super legit in every way. So much so that Moses told them, I'm the first prophet and I'm the first of many. I'm the guy who is speaking to you so that you can hear the voice of God and I will become an archetype. I will become a a pattern. People will be like me. Okay, so he's acknowledging this. But, and and I think they're like, yeah, Moses is great. But then we get to verse 39 again. Verse 39. But our ancestors were unwilling to obey him. (laughs) And they pushed Moses aside and they turned back to Egypt in their hearts. Saying to Aaron, make us gods who will go in front of us. For this Moses led us out of the land of Egypt. We do not know what has happened to him. If you remember that moment, Moses was gone and they start worshiping golden cows again you know, which we all do. He says, he says, you kicked him out, you turned to other gods, in the moment of stress when the things were not safe and secure, you turned back to the last place you remember safety and security, which was Egypt. He says to them, we resisted the Holy Spirit and booted Moses again. We opted to turn back to the death grip, to turn back our hearts to Egypt. Man, have you ever done something that caused you or been doing something that caused you to finally say, man, this is wrecking my life. I have got, I am done. And it's not that long after that you're kind of like, hmm, this not that bad. Just one more time, you know, just one more time. It's what you know. It's the place of safety. I, re- I, have, I told you last week that I've been pursuing counseling and trying to find some healing in my soul. And sometimes I am learning each week more and more about how often um, I will gravitate toward things that are actually very damaging to me. I said, why would you gravitate toward something that damages you, that's dumb? And yet, for whatever reason, that damaging, abusive thing, the thing that harms me, at one point, it was something that sort of wove into my mind as a place of familiarity. It's really brutal and really terrible, and yet I know it, and that means it's safe. I get it. I think that's the Egyptian heart pull. Why the heck would you want to go back into slavery in Egypt? I think it's Well, it's the system we understand. It felt safer than walking around out here in the wilderness just following the Spirit of God in a pillar of, you know, where's the pillar going to go next week? We don't know. He says, you turned away from Moses. So it's the greatest irony, isn't it? These system guys, the Sanhedrin, they're saying, Stephen, you're blaspheming Moses. And Stephen is saying, no, you're doing the same thing to me that you literally did to Moses. I love Moses. I'm like Moses. And that's why you are doing this right now. It's the same thing you did to him. It's the same thing you've done to all the prophets. It's the same thing you did to Jesus. And this was the first part of Stephen's what got him in trouble. God sent his unique and only son to be the Christos, the Messiah. Jesus, the Nazarene. And he gave you the words and the will of God, and you booted him, and you murdered him. And now, like him, I'm saying the same things that he did, and you're about to boot me. In fact, we know that Stephen won't just get booted. It's likely that they'll bury him about waist deep in a hole so he can't get away, and then they'll pummel him with stones until he's dead. This is how vicious it gets when you try to introduce a system to a person. I think at this point, I can almost hear somebody in the crowd. Let's say his name is Herschel. He's yelling out, Hey, Stefan. Stephen's like, It's not Stefan, it's Stephen. It's like, Whatever, Stephen, here's the deal. Our biggest beef with you was the whole bit about tearing down the temple. Okay, about the Moses, whatever, let's just agree to disagree, but the temple, that's the real thing. What do you have to say about that? Stephen, well, if you paid attention, I never said I was tearing down the temple. Jesus of Nazareth said he was going to tear down the temple, and that means God said he was going to tear down the temple. God is currently leading us to step out of the safe system. (gasps) You can hear the temple crowd, they gasp. Why? In verses 39 to 44, I'll paraphrase. He says, Look, I know what you're feeling. But our ancestors were wandering around in the wilderness worshiping a golden cow and then Raphan and then Moloch. Remember Moloch, the one who requires your children to be passed through the fire, sacrificed with fire to him? He's like, Yeah, good call. You guys turned from God way back then, but then check this out God gave you a new system of worship. Okay, so they're tracking with them. They're like, Yeah, we were crazy back then, but God gave us a new way to worship the tabernacle. Verse 44, our ancestors had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness. Just as God spoke to Moses, he ordered him to make it according to the design he had seen. Our ancestors received possession of it. They brought it with Joshua, and they, and they dispossessed the nations. Remember, the clearing of the promised land. They drove them out until the time of David. Okay, He's saying... You used to be chaotic and ridiculous in in the dumb stuff you worshiped, so God brought in a system, the tabernacle, and that helped you, right? It ordered things, it gave you the right relationships, the right rhythms, the right rules. You did it according to whose design? God's design. See, they say, it was the right way to worship, and Stephen says, look at the last three words of verse 45. The tabernacle was great. Yes, it was God-given until the time of David. Hmm, okay. That's one, two, three, four, five words. Not three words. I'm I'm not a math guy. Until the time of David. The tabernacle was God-ordained, and then it ended when David came. Why did it end? Well, because through David, we get the beginning of a whole new system. A whole new way of worship, and this is similar to the tabernacle, but now, especially through Solomon and the temple gets established, it's the way that God wants us to worship. Verse 46, David found favor with God and asked that he could find a dwelling place for the house of Jacob, but Solomon built a house for him. Now we're getting right to the heart of the problem. I can hear that same guy in the, in the crowd, Herschel. That's the whole point. Solomon, David, the great ones, they were all about the temple. It's where God resides, it's where the people go to meet God. It's been given by him, which means if it was given by an eternal God, that means that the gift needs to always keep going eternally. It was given by God. You talk about coming in here and doing what? Introducing a person who says we need to change? Stephen, bro, we boot those kind of guys out of our crowd. Stephen's looking at him and he's like, yeah, (laughs) I know. That's the point I'm trying to make. You got to stop kicking these guys out. God has always been sending them to you. Verse 48, yet the most high, this is Stephen saying to them, the most high God does not live in places that were built with human hands, as the prophet says. He's referring, I think, to Isaiah there. God is not contained in kids camp, or VBS. God is not contained in your Bible. I know that's abrasive to you. The Bible helps us to know God, but God is not trapped in those pages. God is not contained in the building that John G. Mitchell built. God is not contained in the world evangelism systems that have worked really, really well. God is not contained in Ben Tartine's preaching or my own wisdom. God is not contained by our Sunday services or our Sunday schools or our children's ministries. None of what we build and create is what makes it possible for God to live and act and save. If that was the case, he never could have saved Joseph from Egypt. If that was the case, he never could have saved Moses. Okay, you see what Stephen is doing here. He's the most high God. He doesn't live in houses. God is a person. He's not a system. And that person is Jesus Christ. Verse 49, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is a footstool for my feet. What kind of house are you going to build for me, says the Lord? Or what is my resting place? Did my hand not make all of these things? He's saying, yeah, you guys organized these cinder blocks really nicely, for sure. I gave you the cinder blocks in the first place, you know. Yeah, you built St. Peter's Cathedral. That place is awesome. You just can't step into that cathedral without a sense of awe and reverence. But I'm the one who gave you all the stuff to build the cathedrals and the spaces and the places and the temple. You depend on me. I don't depend on you, says God. Why are you telling us all of this? that God does not dwell in places or programs or systems? Why are you saying that to us? Because my friends, says Stephen, you are gripping safety and familiarity just like your ancestors did. And it's killing you just like it killed them. You need to follow the life of Jesus, which is actually the life of God himself. The temporary satisfaction that you get, the lesser love, the temporary satisfaction that you get from knowing that you have followed your system correctly is only satisfaction. It's not real life. Being satisfied that you're following the rules and relating appropriately in your system is good, but it's not the source of life. But he gave us the system. It's from God. We need to carry on the customs and traditions of Moses, otherwise God won't be pleased. God won't be glorified. If you step out of the system, God's gonna destroy us. Stephen, that's why we despise you. That's why we killed Jesus. Our love for God means we have to hate you. Can I just say something important here? If our love for God Causes us to hate other people, that is not love for God. That is not trust in the divine. It's just trust in ourselves. Verse 51, let's close it up. You stubborn people, says Stephen, you stubborn people with rebellious hearts and ears, you are always resisting. The Holy Spirit. You know, parentheses. You think you're resisting evil? You're not. You're resisting the Holy Spirit. Which of the prophets, guys, did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold long ago the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law by decrees given by angels, but you don't obey it. It has not changed you to become one who would recognize Jesus. You powerful, confident people. Isn't real life by necessity constantly moving? Don't we proclaim death upon something that has stopped moving and growing? Isn't that the point that we call it dead? When you see how God gave us the tabernacle, when you see how he gave us the temple, when you see how he gave us the Torah, you see that he set those things into our hands, but our hands should have remained open. Frank, you got a pen? Anybody have a pen? There. Roberta, can I borrow your pen? All right. I'm just stealing it. This is is what God has given to them and to us, our systems, our spaces, the things that work well. We're not calling for anarchy here, but we're calling for holding things loosely. When you hold what God has given us like this, notice what happens. Others can come and use it. We can change it. It can be molded and, and made differently. But as soon as this happens, I will not let go, now it might feel safe and familiar, but it is the grip of death. We receive the good blessings of God that we never grip too tightly. If we do grip them too tightly, we stop moving and we die. And that calls us to ask, am I Stephen in this story or am I the Sanhedrin? Am I the council of rulers? I have a way of life that works, Jesus. I don't need Jesus telling me what is actually life and death. Who made Jesus ruler and judge over me? We say that to Jesus just like they said it to Moses. See how the question reveals something when you say that. Who made Jesus ruler over me? Who made Jesus my judge? The implication is, I'm the ruler, and I'm the judge. We don't say that, though. We just challenge somebody else. And God says, because Jesus made you, that's why. Jesus made all, all the earth and everything that's in it. We don't need Jesus telling us to do with our bodies or giving us input on who to share my bed with. I'll make that call. That's on me. Who's Jesus to tell me that? We don't need Jesus telling us how to spend our money. I have my own rules. I have my own ways of relating. I don't need that stuff. My systems are good. I like Jesus, yeah, for some inspiring thoughts and some good morals. I like that stuff for sure. But Jesus doesn't come into our world to give us inspiration and good morals. He comes to give us life, to become the source of life for us. And it calls you and me to ask this. What am I gripping onto? What am I not letting go of? My favorite, my safest, my most comfortable sexual patterns. I want to keep doing them because it's what I know. It's what's comfortable and safe. My preferred way of doing church services. It's what I know. My popularity. I don't want to change. If I change, what will people think? I might lose my friends, my property, my money. God gave me this. God gave me my property. He wants me to keep it, my precious. I think that's why we're bummed with the temple. That's why they are. They say, God gave us this temple. And he says, yeah, but that was an expression of his will in that day, Now the Son of God has come, the Holy Spirit's been poured out, we're We're doing something new. When you grip, you die. So let's be a team of friends, a community of Christians who take an open-handed posture to life. Open-handed, we're not gripping. The goal is life. The goal is freedom. The goal is peace. The goal is to fall in love with the Savior to fall in love with the Creator, to fall in love with the true God, and quite frankly, men and women and children, to fall in love with each other. To never again say, my love for God means I have to despise you, but instead say, my love for God means I recognize He made you, which means you're infinitely valuable and worth loving. If God loves you, by golly, so do I. That's where we're going as a church. That's the kind of life we're going to continue to nurture. And I think with Stephen's words and the example that he's saying, we can set our hearts and minds into that pattern where we use the things God's given us. We use them wisely. We enjoy them and give thanks for them, but never grip them because we're willing not to resist the Holy Spirit, but to resist the safe grip of death. We don't want to die. Let's be alive in Christ and let's pray. I need to stop talking or we'll be here all day. And we have bratwurst to eat coming up. Jesus, thanks for giving us lunch. Thanks for giving us houses. But help us on this day to remember and to to encourage one another to remember that houses protect and nurture life, but they don't give them to us. Even food sustains and extends our life but you are the source of that mysterious and infinite and beautiful life. Help us to fix our gaze upon you, to lift our eyes up to things above, not things we build. And in doing so, would you make us the most gracious, loving, truthful, hospitable, and generous people that ever walked the face of this planet. Right here, little crew of Christians in East Portland. Help us to be that way. We love you and we trust you with everything. Amen we desire to be formed by the word of god in community if you have questions about this week's sermon we would love to hear from you for more information about our church please visit centralbible.church